Benny Blanco grew up knowing he was happier on the water, but it became crystal clear after he survived a troubled time when he almost lost everything. He then dedicated his life to perfecting his craft and focusing on his life in fishing. He soon saw things differently, including the water quality and its effects on his beloved fish. He wrapped himself and his voice around helping save what he loved most, and his efforts have impacted the conservation movement. On today's podcast, we spoke about how he evolved and became a role model, and has become an inspiration for anyone who's ever struggled in life. We hope you enjoy. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties went to pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. Benny Blanco, thanks for driving up early this morning out of the lower keys or the upper keys, you know, in Boca where that we are. Um, you have a busy, really a busy life. You know, you're not only a family man with three daughters. How old are they? It's got to be getting busy down there. I am. I am busy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have three daughters. Three very blessed to have three amazing Wonder Women daughters. Um, the oldest is twenty. I have a nineteen-year-old and uh, an eight, eighteen, nineteen-year-old and a fifteen-year-old. And um, so two in college and one's a sophomore in high school. Do you have a, a say <laughs> anymore? Yeah, but, I mean, believe it or not, um, you know we. I, I'm very much go with the flow personality anyways. Um, and so I let them get away with, you know, directing a lot of the traffic. Um, but they absolutely respect everything I have to say. So it's, you know, I don't make maybe decisions about food because that's a contentious <laughs> issue, but, uh, but certainly everything else. And um, like I said, I'm blessed. They are, um, I don't know what I did to deserve such good kids, but um they are, I want to be like them when I grow up. Wow. Do they understand what, you know, your impact and what you're doing right now with, in the industry? Yeah, far, far more than I would ever expect them to understand. Um, you know, I never sat them down and said, this is my what I'm doing. This is what my goal and this is what I want to accomplish. Um, they just, you know, I think there's that saying that uh, be careful what you say around kids because they absorb everything. My daughters have absorbed developed further um, knowledge of the subjects and their own uh, opinions. And um, they are warriors. I didn't realize I was raising warriors, but they're warriors. 
uh, my oldest daughter's at FIU in the water resources lab. Um, uh, a relationship that developed off of a internship that I helped her help her gain from Jen Rehage at FIU. And she's going her own route. You know, she is passionate about um, botany and um, biology and marine biology. And um, she understands what we're dealing with on the water. She's seen it in her short lifetime. Can you imagine at 20 years old, you'd seen healthy grass flats and, and then gone and mm. healthy fisheries and then gone and what that does to you at that impressionable age. And um, she knows more about what's happening in Florida Bay than I ever could imagine. Um, and in, in many cases has schooled some of the people that I've been around just because she's a, heard what they've said and corrected them. And mm. um, you know, the, the younger generation, they, they're just smarter than we are. They're uh, more passionate about it. They don't question whether we should save it. They, they want to know what we're doing t- today, tomorrow to do it. Not, not, you know, that it's not going to be here. That's not acceptable. And so right. it's pretty amazing. Well, let's go back a little bit um, because you've had such a big life. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, your efforts with Captain for Clean Water, sure. uh, Hurricane Ian that just came through and all that great work that you guys did. Um, talking about a big life, you're raising a family, you're a fishing guide, uh, you have your own show, uh, you're an active voice in conservation a really big voice uh, when you take a look at everybody else and their voices and their actual movements uh, that they're making. Um, let's go back, you know, to the early years when you were a fisherman and 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 a guy that wanted to be on the water every day. Uh, how did that transformation come to be? Yeah, that's a that's a an important story, I think, um, because I grew up in a community that there were no fishermen. Um, there were no fishermen in my family. Where was that community? I was in Kendall in, in West Miami. Okay. And um, the only fisherman in my entire family at the time was my great-grandfather, who I'd never met. Um, he was a commercial fisherman in Cuba, apparently. And so there was some fishing in my blood. Um, and I really wasn't exposed to fishing until my stepfather, at the age of like eight or nine, um, maybe even younger than that. Um, took me to a canal right down the street. We were living West Kendall. Um, and actually, as a matter of fact, we were living south at the time. We were living in the Redlands with my grandfather on my grandfather's farm, believe it or not. And, um, and what kind of farm did he have? Um, it was a papaya farm and um, he had some horses and cool. you know, I was super young. So I don't, awesome. you know, I didn't absorb everything, but it was a farm mm-hmm. and we were in the Redlands and there were canals everywhere. And my stepfather took me to a canal and I remember catching, you know, maybe a three ounce brim and thinking this is the best freaking thing I've ever seen in my life. Coming from a farm where there were horses and pigs and cows and all these amazing things and, you know, motorbikes and all I could think about was a fish. And I wanted to catch every fish in that creek and I wanted to see bigger fish and I wanted to, you know, that's all I wanted to do. I was completely captivated from the beginning and I, but I was the only one. And, um, you know, growing up in the community I was in, you know, sports was everything. There was, again, no fishing. So while, and I was completely divided. I, I was in love with football and basketball and baseball. I, I was completely captivated. And you were participants? I was. A participant in the sports? I played all three sports up until a sophomore in, in high school. Um, and I excelled at those sports. I was a bigger kid when I was young. 
and um, I didn't necessarily grow uh, too too big when I was, in, I was in high school. But prior to that, I was a bigger kid, and so I was fairly successful in all three sports. And um, I, but I was always drawn to the water, always wanted to be to the water. I just didn't have that outlet. And um, my stepfather was fisherman. He liked to fish. He wasn't very talented fisherman, but he but he liked to fish. Um, and uh, he he would go when I asked him for the most part, but. It was that draw to the water that always called to me, no matter where I was. If I was on a championship baseball team or I was, you know, um, in school looking out the window, I, you know, all I wanted to do was be on the water. I didn't have that outlet. And, um, and when I became, you know, 14, 15 years old, um, I had access to a John boat and some other skiffs around my, my dad and my uncle. And at every single opportunity, I was on the water. Uh, I would be on the water before practice if I could. I'd be on the water after practice. I'd be on the water if I got my homework done on time. Um, I'd ride my bike to the canals, to the to the lakes, just to just to make one cast. If, if Who were some of your teachers or mentors? Was Chico or Jose? No, I, I didn't have a mentor. I wish I wish I did. I think um, I know that my career would have been completely different if I had a mentor. I, In what way? Because you've had a pretty successful career. I had to build it myself. I had to teach myself. See, the learning curve was pretty flat for a long time. Everything, yeah. I, you know, but I'm also super stubborn and and just naive enough to know to think that I can do it all. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're stubborn and you're naive and fearless. You know, but in in regard to that, mm-hmm. your spectrum of information may be a little bit more vast. Mm-hmm. Unlike those that were mentored, this is how you do things, and you that window of vision might be a little bit narrower with a mentor. Right. Where yours is like pretty big. I right. would. I'm just hypothetically thinking this. For sure, I, I can see that. I, you know, when you don't have a mentor, you make a ton of mistakes. Yeah. And when I was young in my career, I made a bazillion mistakes. What was like the the worst? Um, maybe putting myself out there on social media way too early, you know, um, before I, you know, when you're young, you you think you're the best on the planet and you're not. Did you think you were the best? Um, I think, I think there was a blind confidence there that you have to have as a guide. You have to feel like you know what you're doing all the time. So it was founded in your eyes. Sure. It was founded, but you know, again, I didn't have someone older than me telling me, Hey, you know, you're not, you're not who you think you are and you should probably be quiet about it. You know, humility is everything. And that's what I tell the young kids these days. I didn't know any better. Um, I had to make those mistakes and I'm glad I did. It, it made me who I am. Um, uh, and certainly it made you tougher possibly. Yeah, for sure. Because of that. For sure. I have, uh, I have pretty tough skin, you know, just from the beginning, you know, if, if you grow up in a community that doesn't have fishermen in it, how do you explain to your mom, your dad, your grandparents that you're going to be a guide or that you want to fish more than the one time a year that they see people fish? Um, those are those are hurdles that you have to overcome. You're trying to sell sell your, your passion and your direction to people who didn't understand that direction. That's right. No one understood it. Um, my grandmother could see it. She, um, she called me her captain from a very early age. Um, El Capi? She'd say, oh, captain, my captain. And then she called me, oh, captain, my captain forever. That's uh, cool. And, um, and I, in part that made me believe, you know, hey, I'm, I am, I'm a captain. I mean, I might be 10 years old, but I'm a captain. What did, you, uh, what, did it, what did you feel when you got your captain's license um, when you first got it? 
it was fundamental at that point. Yeah. Um, you were you know, already there. I was already mentally there. You know, it, in high school, I was taking my friends out and my friends' dads out, and they were paying for gas and you know buying the lures I told them to buy, and I was reading their rods. I was already a guide. Right. Um, I think most guides are that way. How did your family get from Cuba? Was it your ancestors or your direct family? Um, it was my gra- my grandparents. In 59, when, when Castro took over Cuba, every, it seems like there was a big exodus at that point. Yeah, it was just prior to 59. My grandfather was a, a super intelligent individual, um, very well educated. He was a, a prosecutor, I believe, in Cuba. And um, they left everything. I'm, I can't even imagine. I try to put myself in his position all the time. He was younger than me. He had two very young daughters, my, my mom and my aunt, my godmother, and uh, very young, one and two years old, three years old. And he, he decided to leave everything and go to a new country. That to me is overwhelming. Like I can't even, I can't wrap my head around that. Lose your home, lose all your possessions. Voluntarily, yeah. le- leave it behind. And to go to go search for something better, knowing, having faith that, if they stay together and he works hard, that he could build a new life. And he did. Um, they moved to, I believe, Virginia. I, I don't know the, 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 all the story, all the, all of the details because I was young. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and while he wanted to share it, I probably didn't want to hear it. I didn't understand. Um, but I know that they moved to Virginia. Uh, they were not fans of the cold. Um, <laughs> and he, he wanted to be near family that we had had down here. Um, so they moved to, they moved to South Florida and, um, he bought that farm in the Redlands and, uh, he, they fell in love, he fell in love with horses and, um, the outdoors and, um, that then my mom and my, my aunts all built their own lives, right. you know, in the U S and, um, and at that time it was, it was different than now where they I don't want to say they were ashamed of their culture. I think they were trying to shield us from potential issues with being Cuban in now South Florida, especially around all everything that was happening. And so in my household, we didn't speak a lot of Spanish. Um, we weren't exposed to a lot of the culture. And, um, and what kind s- of foods were you eating? We ate Cuban food. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother always made, you know, chicken and rice and black beans and rice and Biste empanizado and all the things that you love to eat when you go to a Cuban restaurant, and I, I love those things. Um, but in my house, we didn't. We we ate casserole and cheeseburgers, and you know, if we. <laughs> I, I I I don't know that it was a conscious thing, but my mom absolutely didn't didn't want us to be part of that culture. Interesting. And um, as a result, I grew up not knowing what culture was. I my culture was the U.S. Right. Um, and it was, it was an interesting dynamic and it, and it translated into my guiding career as well, because while I operated as another white kid on the block, when I showed up in Flamingo and in Homestead, I wasn't another white kid on the block. I was this brown kid trying to be a fisherman. What kind of atmosphere was that? That was tough. In what way? Uh, I was not welcome. There's, that's for sure. Who were the guys that were bullying you? Uh, People that you know today that, you, a cu- that, you, a that you fish next to? A couple. Um, there were a couple older legends, and I'll use that term loosely, that that um, that I don't know that it was a racist thing. I think it was just a new kid on the block thing. 
Um, and in some cases it was a racist thing. And, um, that was difficult for me to wrap my head around because right. I, I didn't understand that, but I had the television and I saw flip on Sunday mornings. And that was like, you know, that was my deep dive into, into learning about flats fishing. I, again, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't even know what flats fishing was. I just knew that I needed to be in the Everglades. I needed to be in the water. And here's this guy talking about how amazing this place is, these places are. And, um, and I know that's where my love for conservation came from. Um, looking at a place as more than just a fishery, as a place to, you know, become yourself, to, right. to lose yourself, to look at, look at how beautiful the trees are and these birds and the, and the, how this water is so beautiful. And that, that to me was a different perspective that I didn't get at home. How old are you now? Um, when I'm talking about this? No, right. Yeah. How old right are you? now I'm, I'm 46. So you were like in your early twenties when you were first out there. Cause yes. you've been a guide for 22 years now or something. I've like been that. a guide for 24 years. 24 years. Mm-hmm. 98 is when I started. Mm-hmm. And what was, what was the Everglades? I always like to say this. I know some people hate it, but you know, I'm 28 years old. Yeah. I didn't get to see what you saw yeah. 24 years ago. What was the Everglades like? You know, flamingo, the grass flats, the the red fishing, the snook fishing. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, very much like it is today in the sense that I didn't know any any. I didn't know how to appreciate the flats back then. If I knew then what I knew now, I probably could tell you these ridiculous stories. And I have some. I definitely have some ridiculous stories I can tell you. But uh, for me, it was more about just being able to get lost, to have all this open area to go. Um, to just go look and to, and to be alone and to, and to, uh, have complimentative conversations with myself to, to, to not be surrounded by concrete and, you know, judgment or someone telling me that I couldn't do something. I, I, it was me now the captain of my ship. I'm sure too, a lack of boats as well. For sure. I mean, when I, when I started polling on the flats in Flamingo, there were only a handful of guides out there polling. On, even on the, the nicest of Saturdays. Um, and, um, and I, I say that pretty confidently, like, you know, that was not that long ago, but there certainly wasn't anything like what we see today. Um, on a nice weather Tuesday, there's more boats in Flamingo than there was an entire week right. when I first started. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, and that was part of the reason why I decided to be a guide in Flamingo. Um, you know, part of it was that it was a national park protected and obviously people were going to take care of it. And, um, and two, that there wasn't a lot of people out there and I felt like I had something special that I could share with the world. You know, I, you pull 10 feet to see a redfish, you'd pull 15 feet and see a four snook. And, and as far as I knew that didn't exist anywhere. And so I, I felt like I had something special to share with the planet. And, um, and were you already thinking that back when you were at that age? Oh yeah. If I think if I could have seen that when I was 10, I probably would have thought when I was 10, um, so you've always been conservation minded, minded, and and a person who wants to share this beauty. Where a lot of people go, oh my god, I don't want anybody to know where I am at and what I'm seeing. Cause yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't know why that I, f- I felt that way. Maybe because I came from a community that didn't understand it, and I wanted to show people. Maybe if I came from a community that was fishing heavy oriented, that I would have been taught at an early age that you you know you don't share with anybody. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that that mentality. I, I think. I think that especially these days we're we're dying for more people to, to love the places so we can help 
protect it. But a lot of times, you know, the old statement that we're starting to hear more prevalently is we're loving it to death, like yeah. the West. Sure. Um, but I think at your early 20s, would it might have been a thought like, I got to share this with people to to convince them that what I'm doing is really good. For sure. And and this is what I do. I'm really I'm really good. So you almost had to prove yourself. And that's why you told everybody how, how it was. For sure. I, I That was definitely one of my mistakes as a young guy is I've, I felt like, and I honestly up until five years ago or so, I felt like I always had to prove myself. Um, I, when did you get over that hump? I have no idea. Honestly, I don't think it was a conscious thing. I you think- um, matured possibly? maybe at the age ripe age of 40 i matured um i honestly i don't ever really want to completely mature i think i think being a fisherman keeps you young forever right. and um and i so i don't want to lose that but um but i definitely am over needing anybody to feel that i'm good i i, I couldn't care less right well obviously it takes it takes a lot of years to gain wisdom <laughs> You know, innocence, I miss innocence mm -hmm. because of the unknown. That's why we're innocent. We don't have that wisdom, and wisdom comes with many, many years. Right. Uh, and that's at this age of 70 that I'm going to be at here very soon. That's one of the things I miss most. But once you gain wisdom, you find comfort. Yeah. There's a lot of anxiety when you're innocent because it's like there's such a big world out there and I'm not sure where I'm gonna go or how I'm gonna get there. It's exciting, but there's anxiety. Sure. And once you get a little bit older, you just kind of settle in and know exactly who you are and what you do. And you're welcome to come with me, but I'm not gonna be apprehensive and try to prove what you've, what you've proven to yourself. Right, I agree. I, I, think, um, I think it took me a long time to really come to terms with the fact that I am a guide. Um, and it took a it took a major life event, honestly, to get me there. Do you think possibly in the early stages a guide was not a really respectable thing because it was not like a doctor or a lawyer or or a common job that a lot of people have, you know, to make a fair amount of money? Certainly. In my neighborhood it definitely was. I mean, when I told my mom I wanted to be a guide, she almost laughed at me. Um Yeah, you know, but, I, but but then certain areas like in the in the keys, the old captain saying was was you know, it's prestigious. It was it was something to be a captain, don't you think? Right. I wish I grew up in a neighborhood like that. I don't know if that I wish. I, I know that it built me into the person that I am, but that was not the community I was in. The community I was in, I, I was I was a great um, great in school. I got unbelievable grades. I was recruited by some of the better colleges for the for that fact. Uh, I went to Georgia Tech to be a civil slash environmental engineer. Um, I got scholarships for that reason. Um, and so my mom always had it in her mind that I was going to be a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, an architect, something of that nature. So you had two things going against you. Mm -hmm. You're a Cuban mm -hmm. and you're a guide. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, and um, you fought back extremely well, bro. You know, I, I, um, I think I excel when I'm counted out, when I'm not supposed to be doing something. You know, when I'm told... My mom told me I shouldn't be a guide. I, I had to be a guide. Um, when I was told recently, and six, seven years ago, that I, I couldn't guide bonefish and permit and tarpon. Oh, guess what? That's exactly what I do. But well, that was that was from your fellow guide saying that. Yeah, and just anyone. I, I just uh, I think boxes 
can be can go to one of two ways people put you in a box it can it can be restrictive you can allow it to be restrictive or you can be a challenge and i love a challenge i love being the underdog i love being told i can't do something that is the most dangerous thing you can do with, with me when did you first notice that you're a fighter <laughs> um probably at a really young age i had uncles who were who were pretty physical we were on, you know, in the, on the, in a farm life and highly competitive, you know, I think the Cuban culture is just a highly competitive culture, a lot of machismo attitude. And, um, and so I had to defend myself from a very young age. Uh, I was, I was probably raised a fighter. Um, I, my parents got divorced when I was young. Um, I was always fighting for attention for, for everything. I don't, I think, um, I think it's just kind of, I think it's certainly part of my family's culture, but I think it's part of the Cuban culture to be fighters, you know, to, to be hustlers, to be, you know, to always be innovating and, and pushing. And I think it's just in my blood. Right. Well, I think all the American Cubans fought to get out of there mm-hmm. and they fought to uh, make a life for themselves here in this country. So I think sure. across the board, generally speaking, all the Cubans I know have always excelled at what they've done. Right. Especially in the fishing community. Yeah. I mean, Gosh, how many? I don't know any Cubans outside of the fishing community. <laughs> I don't live in Miami. Well, I'll say that um, it wasn't. Uh, so I had Flip when I was young. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to, I, I don't know how old it was, 10, 11. Uh, I just wanted a beard and a fly rod and a Hell's Bay. And that's all I wanted. Um, I didn't I didn't know any better. I was just, I just wanted to be part of that life. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was going to Homestead and Flamingo and being told no. that You're too brown. You're too young you, you don't belong here and here comes this dude on sunday mornings with this long hair and mustache and he looked just like me he looked like he was an uncle in my family and um he talked passionately about loving the the earth and the water and and being a good steward and and then was an excellent fisherman and um jose had impact on me like i i could not accurately describe it to me it was all of a sudden a yes for everything. Um, he showed you what was possible and that you can have this lifestyle. He showed me that everything that everyone told me was bullcrap. That that I should fight, and and um, I don't know that if he hadn't been there that I would have gone the route I went. I think he was that. I think the door was cracked open, and I think he just blew it right open, and. Um, and that's all I needed. And I met him. I met him later on in life, and um, told him some of the stories from when I was young, and how they told me no. And he told me similar stories, and and said, "Look, you know, when someone's telling you no, it's for one of two reasons: one, because it really means no, or two, because they're scared of you. And in all cases, when somebody tells you no, you pursue it with everything you got. And I've lived by that since." When, when I've always come across that option, mm-hmm. regardless of what it is, we have a brain that sometimes wants to push your instincts aside. And every time I've done that, I've been wrong. Every, as I've gotten older, instincts are everything yeah. because the instincts represent the truth. Right. In, way, way, way in here, we know what's right and wrong. And the brain wants you to do something that this guy's saying, you know, that's not going to work. Right. Did you find that struggle? 
in your life the, the head wanting to do something but your instincts were really and also too when you're in when you're innocent and you're young instincts are not developed yeah you don't know what to you don't know. You know you don't know what to listen to so you have that imbalance because you don't have the wisdom you have instincts kind of mm. but there's not really truthful because you don't really know but you feel this and your head is raging I find that war to be very interesting. And it took me a while to understand what that guy is saying and always go to this guy. Right. I, I agree. I, I I battled. I mean, I still battle, but I, I battled when I was young heavily because I was told one thing. I was steered in one direction and I felt like I was going the wrong way always. Um, and that caused a lot of turmoil when I was in my 20s. Even after I decided to become a guide, um, I didn't really know who I was. Um, I came from a family who wanted one direction. I had, you know, my heart and soul telling me to go another direction. I knew how I felt when I hit the glades and went to the back and, and, you know, was learning who I was. Um, and now when I talk to to kids, which I do all the time, I, I, I go to high schools and middle schools and talk to them all the time. And when I, when I talk to the kids, I, I tell them that they have their only job before they're 40 is to find out who they are. Mm-hmm. Nothing matters until you find out who you are. And when your heart is telling you to go a certain direction, you 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 pursue with everything you have, no matter who's telling you no, especially when people are telling you no, you pursue it because something is greater than you is telling you what you need to be doing. And I wish I had that, that ad- advice when I was a kid. I didn't. Um, What'd you do differently? Um, because you eventually became that guide you wanted to be and no, and everybody was, was naysaying it. Yeah, I did. I did. And again, I, you know, part of me b- truly believes that all of those struggles made me who I am. And that's um, very much the case. But I struggled, you know, and those struggles suck. It, well, that's part of growing up. For sure. Uh, for sure. What was your biggest struggle? You. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm not going to go away anytime soon, so get over it, bro. Well, you're 70, so. Still struggling. I got, what, three years? <laughs> um, it was interesting during the prime of my ski life. Um, I, I made a lot of really bad decisions. Yeah. And unfortunately, that was a window that goes away hmm. when you're an athlete. And, you know, 2020 hindsight is always spot on, but those are growing pains. Um, but I, too, when I, I haven't done a lot of, you know, uh, inspirational speaking to, I, you know, did one college graduation commencement speech. And, and that's why I said, I said, you know, to all these kids, just like you, you follow your voice, find your voice. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be hard to say no to the people that are trying to direct you, but you have your own direction. Right. You know, it's like it's like you, Nikki. You tried to do it the conventional way by trying to find a job in New York. You know what I'm saying? When you're trying sure. to get in, involved with that whole world, how did you make that transition? I mean, look what we're doing now. But tell tell us about well, your. I think it pace. just goes back to following your heart. You know, I knew it wasn't I, it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. Um, it was uncomfortable, and you know, I think a lot of growth came from that, and I learned a lot, but ultimately it's not where I wanted to be it's not where I was supposed to be and I just kind of retreated back to where my heart was leading me just like mm-hmm. what Benny and you were saying yeah um it's it's when it comes down to it, it's pretty obvious yeah you um, know that's why I feel people who get married you know before the age of 30 and then they have kids 
at 20 and 21, 22. They just, they don't know who they are. Yeah. And I, I feel sorry for them. Anyway, let's get back into the fishing thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people, um, tell me about tournaments. Sure. What do tournaments do for guides as far as a status thing when you win big events? I'm glad you brought that up. I, Because I, I, a lot of people don't go there. Like, we just had this great conversation with Rick Ruoff up in Montana. Mm-hmm. I asked him the same. He's one of the great names in the, in the Keys. Mm-hmm. I said, Rick, why did you not pursue these tournaments like Steve Huff, um, Harry Spear that won all these things that really put them all up on this big pedestal, but yet Rick is up there. Mm-hmm. And he never pursued tournaments, never won tournaments. He said, I got this knot in my stomach. I didn't like the anxiety. Yeah. Um, so tournaments are obviously not for everybody. So how do you feel about tournaments and, and all of that? That is, um, is pretty, it's got a pretty big target on. on I'm glad you asked. I, I am, I am not like everybody else. Um, and when I, when I, when I talk to the kids, I, I go, especially the young guides who I speak a lot to, um, I explicitly explain to them that they should never try to emulate someone. And I think in certain cultures like, like that exist in the keys, the, the older guides, the legends that are, ex- that are still living and still guiding and winning these tournaments, they create such a pedestal that the younger guides just want to emulate. Right. And I think that's, that's, I think that's bad. I, I personally don't agree with that scenario. I, I think you're not allowing, you're creating a gen- generations of guides who aren't truly who they are, who themselves. I think they're trying so hard to be like that legend. They're so trying so hard to win 10 tournaments because you won nine. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to catch that 400 pound fish because you caught a 399. And um, I, there's value there. Like I, I admire Rob Fordyce for his passion for tournament fishing. I think that's incredible. I've I've never had one species draw me like that. Um, I admire that. That's not me. Um, I think tournaments in many cases are bad for the fishery, for the resource. In what way? I, I think tournament day, people do things that they wouldn't do on a regular day. Um, How does that affect the fishery? You're talking about strapping fish and I mean, mishandling. No, no, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about strapping fish. I um I, I have no problem with how tournaments are run. I, I just mean, um maybe if you're trying to get to a flat before everybody else and there's a corner to be cut, you cut it. I and, see. And I think I think it creates this additional stress on a day that shouldn't be there. Um, fishing is supposed to be fun, and I have fished many tournaments where that were fun. And, and I, I still fish some tournaments that are fun. Um, I fished many tournaments that should have been fun where we caught unbelievable fish and they weren't fun because we didn't win. And um, I think it's just, it's a stain sometimes on the sport. Um, I didn't get into fishing to compete at that level where money was an issue and horsepower was an issue and, and the biggest fish was an issue. I got in lo- involved in fishing because it's, it's in my blood mm-hmm. it's, it's well, my look, soul representing you know my perspective on tournaments mm-hmm. i didn't really know how i could assess how good i was until i f- fished the tournaments sure so that was my whole objective is that in the same some a lot of the guys perspective like 
that is really the best way to assess how good you are? Totally, totally understand that. I, I think that's I think that's why Rob does it. Um, he wants to know where he stands all the time, and I completely get that. And uh, I th- but here too, Benny, I think you like tournaments. I've seen you in tournaments. Yeah. I think you do like it because just like you said, you like being the underdog mm-hmm. and you like being counted out. And you want to prove yourself wrong constantly, prove yourself right constantly. I, I agree with that. There's definitely a, a portion of that. I, what I don't agree with is is this aura that if you win these tournaments, that that's a status that defines your life. Let me ask you, Andy. You've won all these big tournaments. Is that Does that define your life? Uh, no, no, for sure not. But what it does, it... it um, it sh- it showed me that I was a pretty good fisherman. That's all. That's sure. all it was. Sure. That I could compete uh, against the best. The Andy I know is a great dad. He's a great uh, speaker. He's a great fisherman because I've seen him fish. Um, I never think of Andy Mill as he's the guy that won that tournament. I know right. you did, and that's fantastic. But I I know Andy for for being Andy. For sure. All that does is a confirmation that I was a good fisherman. Sure. Are and you, you going to cry? <laughs> I'm sorry? Are you going to cry? <laughs> so you get a little Do I look like I'm going <laughs> to cry? So you get a little teary-eyed. <laughs> Here, I'm always I got, worried about you. Here, I got something in my pocket for you. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean that um, we are bigger than tournaments. Right. And I, I agree that they're special and they can be and winning one is incredible and I would love to win some of those tournaments, there's no doubt, but it's not going to define my life. Right. I am a dad. I am a conservationist. I'm a, a speaker. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guide, the best guide I can possibly be on any given day for my clients. And for me, that's that's my life. That's right. defining my life for sure. I've won a bazillion tournaments. I, I never once would tell somebody that oh my name is benny blanco and i won that tournament I, right it's just not defining for me yeah. it's it's a it's an accomplishment on that day for that client and that's special that we'll always have together but it's not a defining thing for me and i think there's a lot of a lot of communities around the country you know, we've known we know a couple intimately that the definition of who you are is how many tournaments you've won or what tournament you've won and i think that's toxic mm-hmm. for this community for for people in general for young kids yeah i f- you know i feel um rick ruoff was really he was awesome talking to him about tournaments and who he is and what he does and he like you uh really articulated that it's not the end all he doesn't even fish tournaments Mm-hmm. It's what kind of a good person you are and how well you fish on a daily basis. Um, and I think what also, you, you mentioned turnoff. I think what also can be a turnoff is social media. You know, people that can't, I don't want to, you know, just say it goes beyond this, but, you know, people that can't fish tournaments or they're constantly trying to prove themselves and have a big ego. They want to post, 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 face grab, face grab. But I have to say your social media is completely different. I mean, I've learned so much from what you post and what you advocate out there. And it's unlike any other account that I follow. And I just wanted to say kudos to you because you are getting a lot more people active. And um, what do you see on his account? Because I don't see, I don't do any of that stuff. Thank you. You know, I think when I was young, it was, I know when I was young, it was definitely... Fish. A brag board. 
Yeah. It was going back to that whole mentality. I grew up in a community that didn't believe in fishing, that didn't understand fishing. I had to prove myself constantly. So social was an opportunity to prove who I was. I caught 47 redfish today and, and 10 snook and I'm the best of all time. And it was just this bragging board, which is complete bull crap. That's, that's how I built my name in the industry by, by, by proving myself constantly. And that's such a bad route. And I'm sure you got many clients from that. I'm, I definitely did. Definitely did. But somewhere along the line, in the mid, probably 14, 2015 or so, I realized that I, there were a lot of things that happened between 2010 and 2015 that made me realize, A, that I have a responsibility to the resource. If, if I'm really going to be a guide. What's the most important thing that, that took place between those those years? Um, when was Where had that bell ring for there you? There were a couple. Um, the My life-changing moments happened in 2012 or so. Um, I had, I had when I was younger, 10 years prior to that, I was a young, I was 20 years old. I had 22 years old. I, I had a, a new wife, a, a baby on the way. And I made a lot of bad decisions. Um, what was the worst? Um, I w- in some business decisions that got me in a lot of trouble. And um, I didn't like who I was. I couldn't even look in the mirror. I hated myself. Were you lying and cheating somehow? Doing, yes, bad, lots of bad things. And um, I, it was at that time that I decided that the only place that I knew who I was was on the water. And I made an active decision to stop and to go on the water. And I became a full-time guide. Um, 10 years later, it caught up to me and I lost everything. I lost my boat, my truck, my clients. How'd you lose all that? It, it, I was pursued legally and, um, and it was a, a difficult, very difficult situation where my wife had one foot out the door. I thought I was gonna lose my family. So I, at, at there was one day where I was sitting at my kitchen table and I literally had nothing. Nothing, nothing in the bank, no truck, no boat, no clients. I didn't even know if I was going to be able to keep my captain's license. My wife was basically a foot out the door and I thought I was going to lose my family. It was, it was a moment of clarity unlike anything else. And in that moment, it, everything in life, when you take away all those extracurricular things, life is simple, very simple. I knew who I was at that moment. I knew I was a guide. I was born and built to be a guide. I knew I love my family more than anything. And I was going to do everything from that moment forward to make sure that my family knew that every single day and that I was the best guide I could possibly be. And my life changed. Then, uh, so long story short, I, I, I worked as many jobs as I could to get back on the water. Bought my first boat again. Was a health, bought my first professional. Got a truck. Um, did did it, built my life back. Built my my client list back, and a lot of the clients I'd lost came back. And um, it's actually better than ever. And when you refocus and you have those moment of clarities, those moments of clarity, you can go one of two ways. You can continue down that road of depression and feeling bad for yourself, and you know doing other things to suffice your time or you can pursue what you know is right with everything you have and that's what i did and then in 2015 we lost all the grass in florida, in florida bay and i realized that i had to be a steward what was that Fifty thousand acres 40 to fifty thousand acres i think the initial estimation was like forty thousand acres unbelievable and um 
it's it was way more than that because there was years of degradation that happened afterwards that they weren't counting. It's 50, 50 plus thousand acres of grass were gone. Um, I built my entire life, my entire career on that grass. I, I was a Florida Bay fishing guide. Um, all of my clients came there to sight fish on that grass and it was gone you know, overnight. So I had two life-changing moments within the course of five years. A, the clarity moment that made me realize who I am. I was born and raised to be a guide. That's who I am to the, to my core beyond any human presence. I am a guide. That's what I'm here for. And then two, that because of what happened in 15, that I had to use my platform that I had been building my entire career to, for, to be a, a representative for the water, to speak up for the water. Nobody else was doing it. There was, there was no, when you went to, the Everglades National Park meetings, no one talked about the water. When you went to the South Florida Water Major District meeting, no one talked about Florida Bay. Literally, no one was talking about the water. So when I tell people, if you don't speak up for the water, no one will, I truly, literally mean that. I went to these meetings and no one was talking up. I, I realized that my responsibility as a guide was farther than on the back of the skiff putting people on fish farther than teaching them how to fish, farther than teaching them how to be a good steward, I had to I had to use my platform to teach people about what was going on. That must have been pretty daunting because no one else was speaking about it and there was no one that wanted to hear. What about Captains for Clean Water? Were they established by then? It was terrible. They were not. And they were established in 16. I, I met Daniel and Chris early 16 um, at a subcommittee hearing meeting in Tallahassee. It was the first meeting I went to in Tallahassee. And um, I got up and just blasted the, the Senate hearing, um, I figured that if I told them what was going on, they would fix it. And um, that was the, the very beginning of my very rude awakening, of, you know, the long process of government relations with environmental restoration projects. Um, but the guy sitting right next to me had this long beard, younger guide, and he was saying the same thing, but about too much water getting to his fishery and I was getting enough. And um, we became friends. His name is Daniel Andrews. He and Chris very shortly thereafter created Captains for Clean Water. And um, I realized that I had to be the voice of Florida Bay. Like they, they were speaking up for the Clusahatchee and the West Coast and all the discharges they were getting and no one was speaking up for Florida Bay. I had to do it. And I had to do it in a huge way to make waves, to make people hate me, love me, listen, do whatever. Whatever it was, I had to, I had to do it. and. Um, I took that social media platform that I built and built it into an educational tool. And um, it, because of that, I'm able to reach people that, who ordinarily would have no idea what was going on in Florida Bay. And um, that was just the beginning of, of what we've created in this, this major movement towards clean water. I was going to say, that's exactly what you do with your TV show too. Yeah. You know, your TV show, as you explained, it's a, it's a, um, educational environmental show hidden as a fishing show yeah it's, i believe I, you said that i say it's a um it's it's an educational program disguised as a fishing show and that that was a product a couple years later of that same ideology that we had to use our platforms to teach people maybe i didn't know everything i didn't know everything at the time i just knew that we lost grass and nobody was talking about it so i spoke up at every opportunity i probably sound like an idiot but i had to speak up no when did, did when did they start listening um, not till years later. Uh, at first, I was being condemned again for- By whom? Everyone. Um, not your fellow guides. Fellow guides, 
for sure. There's still wow. fellow guides that condemn us because how can they possibly condemn you guys? When you when you're a fishing guide in a tourism based economy, and you talk about bad water, then people don't come. And so, what well, we were chastised for years, for years. I was called. I got in major verbal fights, near fist fights, many times, with from people who were my peers in in fisheries that I fish in that just didn't understand it. That they 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 you know their argument is that it's cyclical and that the glades is going to come back. I don't know what I'm talking about, and and um, over time, I, I mean, it goes back to that mentality that. I was told no, and I still became a guide, and I'm stubborn and naive enough, and I was not going to take no for an answer. I, I, I knew that Everglades restoration, the overall Everglades restoration, was decades of, of fights, and nothing had been done. So when, when nothing's been done and you need to get something done, you have to have a drastic change. Mm-hmm. It has to be a dyna- – I called it a dynamic <clears throat> cultural change. This was, five, this was seven years ago. We needed to have a dynamic cultural change in this industry where people stopped looking at what we were going to get paid the next day. You know, that mentality of don't talk about it because we need people to keep coming here. And also that mentality of take, 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 take. I'm a, I'm a fisherman and I can keep my limit all the time. To the mentality of this is a resource that we are privileged to have access to. And it will not be here if we don't take care of it. It's finite. It can be infinite. It can be there for perpetuity if we do the right things, but we're not doing the right things. And in, in order to get people to that mentality, I had to ha- we had to have a major shakeup. Mm-hmm. And um, what was that shakeup? Um, I think it's been a, a few things. Uh, Daniel and Chris started Captains for Clean Water. That took off. They started educating people on the West Coast and educating people in the sense that the Everglades is one system. And I'll get to that even more in, in, in a minute, but the Everglades is one system. So we went from the Clusahatchee fighting for the Clusahatchee and Florida Bay fighting for Florida Bay to we're one team fighting for the same thing. Um, that happened. Then in 18, I was approached by Florida Sportsman Magazine to do to continue a show that they had, and I, I hated fishing shows. After after Flip and, and Jose, I didn't want to watch another fishing show. I hated fishing shows, you know. He, um, he hated your fishing show too, Dad. I was before those guys. <laughs> so perhaps if I saw yours, I'd like it. But at the time, I, I hated fishing shows. And so my answer was no for months. I said no, 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 no. And I, then finally, I, I, it occurred to me one day we were in D.C., Daniel, Chris, and I we were in D.C. And I said, you know, what if, you know, what if jokingly, completely jokingly, so what if we created a fishing show and we could just talk about water issues? And they were like, oh, that would be amazing. And but the question here too mm-hmm. that I would have: mm-hmm. How do you have a fishing show talking about water qualities and make it exciting? Yeah, for sure. That's the so you got to you have to have to you still have to catch fish and to make the balance that you are catching fish. Right. So that's the struggle there. Always a struggle. Yeah. So a couple of days later, Blair Wickstrom called me from Florida Sports and I said, "Look, man," and I told him no many times. I said. The only way I'm going to do a fishing show is if I can talk about the water issues. And he goes, "No way, you can never do that." You know, you can't talk about water issues on a fishing show. And I was like, okay, no problem. And I got phone. And a week later, he calls back and he goes, you still think you, should, you could do a show on bad water? It's like, this is the only way I'm going to do a show. And he goes, okay. And I got off the phone and I called Daniel. And I said, I, I think I just agreed to, to doing a fishing <laughs> oh, show. No. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> he goes, oh, no. Exactly. Something like that. And um, I had to battle because... Uh, Florida Sportsman is an old 
establishment and they have certain ways of doing things and I had to battle. I was going to, I was not going to sell out who I was, mm-hmm. the, the business I built and the place I loved. Um, and I, I built a fishing show about water quality issues all around the state of Florida. And we made it exciting because I, I went and I tapped on Flip's shoulder and I said, Hey buddy, I need your help. And I tapped on Rob's shoulder and Hey bud, need your help. And we told the stories of the water issues through relatable stories by people that everyone wants to hear. Mm -hmm. And it worked. We were nominated for several awards. We, you know, um, it's so funny that first iCast I went to and was begging brands to be involved. And I was told so many times, you can't do a fishing show on bad water. Are you kidding me? That's that's never going to work. And, um, a year later, they were begging me to be involved. Wow. And um, we had created a, an opportunity to educate people outside of our communities, um, educate people who were younger generations who were who were just dying for that information. And um, and I didn't realize we were doing this, but we were making it cool to talk about water issues, to mm-hmm. talk about conservation. We were we were changing the culture, that dynamic culture change that I said that we needed to have three years prior. We were doing it. We just didn't know. And so now I'm fully aware. Now everything I do, and you you see it online, everything I do is to perpetuate that cultural change. Well, I think it culminated this year when when everybody gathered up in Tallahassee to kill the bill. Man, that was... I, I, I mean, that is a success story. Yeah, I didn't cry in front of you, but man, that was an emotional church-like experience that I can't explain because for six years prior we fought tooth and nail to just get anyone to show up for anything and um when that happened in in february when i got the call from daniel i was on actually on the phone on the boat with panos we were tarpon fishing and um he was actually fighting a fish and i went to grab my phone so i could video and there was like eight missed calls from daniel and that never happens. I know that's an emergency. So instead of videoing, Pano's fighting his fish. Instead of videoing, I pick up the phone. I call him. Hey, Daniel, what's what's up? He goes, uh, life or death emergency. We we need to be in Tallahassee like tomorrow night. And so, uh, okay, uh, I, please send me the information. I'm going to jump on it. He goes, and I need you to get everybody to show up. I'm like, okay. I think we got the call from from you, right? Oh, yeah, Nick? for sure. Yeah. For sure. And um so Panos gets his, lands his fish, and I'm like, "Hey, man, congratulations! Good news, bad news." And he goes, "What's what is it?" I, so good news is you're one for one, and that's freaking epic. The bad news is the day is over. I gotta go. And Panos, you know, of course, just went along with it. And as I'm running back to the dock, I'm texting people and calling people. Cancel your days. I need you to show up. I need to cancel your days. I need you to show up, like we've done in the past a million times, expecting two people to show if we were lucky, and. In 24 hours, we had 40 something guys show up. Mm-hmm. I I can't even I, even just thinking about it now. I get goosebumps, and and I sincerely want to cry because um, it was years of battling to get to that point where people believed that we even had issues. To let alone get them to commit such that they would cancel days and drive seven hours overnight to be there the next day to 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 file testimony about why we need to protect the Everglades. Um, that was, I mean, that, that was a, that was my tournament win, right? Hmm. You and know, that's, and that's, that's bigger than anything you're gonna win in the Keys. This is my point. Yeah. And so um, two weeks later is when I called you um, and we did this overnight as well. 
Hey guys, I called 7,000 people probably. I mean, my, my phone, if you probably looked at my phone bill, it's probably, you know, like, like a dictionary. Um, I called everybody and the same story. Hey, I need you to show up. I need people there. I need bodies. You don't have to speak. Just show up. I need, I need, we need to fill the doors. We need to show them that Tallahassee is not going to operate if they don't listen. And, um, I, I called you, Andy. I very intimately remember before I could finish the sentence, you said, yes, bud, I'll be there. I, I got a, I have a plane to catch. I, I have to change my flight, but I, I'll be there. I'll, I'll find a way to be there. I mean, that was, if I could have hugged you through the phone, I would have. Um, those yeses that we got on those days were, um, I mean, just the confirmation that we needed that everything that we had fought for all those hundreds of days that i'd given up the time away from my daughters the the days i canceled the moving of trips the 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 loss of income everything that i had gone through over the last six years was just confirmation that we were doing the right thing i i knew in my heart i was doing the right thing but but when when guys are showing up and then the legislature's literally moving a mountain for us that was that was everything and um your voices were finally heard like i said that was a tournament win for us yeah let's go um uh let's talk about hurricane ian sure that just came through um i mean this podcast is taking place what november 1st uh ian was what when did that come through a month september um, at the end of september yeah i mean that was i think the third largest hurricane that came through florida yeah you were there i was well, anything and that happens for clean water was there. I mean, the movement for from the perspective of captains for clean water and all of you guys that have been fighting for clean water, you were also there for hurricane relief. Yeah. What did you see over there? I mean, we saw you unloading all these Yeti coolers and water. And you're you know. there the next day. Drop yeah. of a hat. Benny's there. Any yeah. devastation? Well, I mean, this this one was a little different. You know. Um, I personally have been preaching for like four years that we are one community. We are one community. I, I should care about the water in Montana. Like the, the people in Montana should care about the water in my backyard. We are one community. When we operate as one community, we're a $400 trillion economic driver for the, the country. We're uh, 2% of the GDP. When we speak as one, things move. Mm -hmm. And so I can't get people to believe that if I'm only fighting for my water. And so we've been saying that for, I've been saying that for years. Captains is starting to say that same tune now. And that's, and that's, that was, that's crucial for me. So that's why you see me everywhere. Um, but this one was different. This one was coming literally to the captain's clean water backyard. It, it went right over the captain's clean water office. The entire staff was in the eye of the storm. Um, so I stayed in communication with them overnight and I kept getting messages from Daniel that this is, this is the real deal. We need to, we need to help when you're going to need help. People, people are going to be in trouble. There's going to be loss of life. Um, and all I could think about was Andrew and what, it, what that did for Homestead and the places that I love and the people that I love to flip to, sure. to Herman, to everyone. And, um, I was all night long that Wednesday night, I was calling everybody, my friends with airboats, my friends with John boats, my friends that I knew had gas, getting everybody ready for the next morning. And, um, I got a call early on, early in the morning from Daniel, and he said that um, the water was receding, so we didn't need airboats. So I literally canceled all the airboats and just drove, had my truck full of supplies, tools, everything I needed to do, and just drove. What did Yeti uh, come to the table with? Uh, you know what's, what's, what's really awesome? 
with this movement that that captains has created that we've created as a community is that we've engaged the industry right the industry we're we're more than just just consumers for them we are family and um and that in the first early hours of the hurricane i got calls from jake at Yeti, from Joe, from from Joe Gugino, from Costa. Costa. Right. I mean, Joe was like blowing my phone up. What can I do? How can I get right. there? What do you need? You know, before you even ask. Before I know, it wasn't even on my mind. These guys are unbelievable. Re- regardless of where it is and and what it is, you always see Costa and Yeti. I think those two. Yeah. This for me, I always see them because yeah. we're associated with them. But they're always in. Yeah. It's it's about building community. You know. Um, and there's a lot to be said for, you know, people look at Costa and yet they think, wow, there's these huge companies and no, they're people. They're, they're people that we've, that we've made part of our families and they love us. They love our fisheries like we do. And they have some resources that can help us. Right. And, and that was one of the coolest things that happened. You know, I was there. What did you see when you went over there? I mean, uh, things that people should never have to see. Um, Daniel saw a little bit more than I did on that first day. Uh, you know, what you can imagine people that didn't make it, um, buildings blown completely off their foundations. Do you see dead people? I did. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a tough thing. And Chris, Chris, <laughs> the, the, the very first conversation I had with Daniel was I, you know, I haven't heard from Chris. Have you heard from Chris? You know, have you seen him? You know where he is. And, and all I could think was like, Chris is the last person I'm ever going to worry about. Armageddon comes. I think Chris will be at the top of the mountain, you know, looking down like, hey, get safe up here. Come up here. Like Chris is that guy. He was out in his John boat rescuing people from minute one. During he, during the storm. Yeah. After, after the, the hardest part went after, through. Yeah. You know, I think it speaks volumes to guides in general. Captains are always the first one to rush to the problem. Um, and when you have communities that are on the water like that, the guides know the water better than anybody. And um, guides are resourceful. They're they're fearless. They're le- natural leaders. And um, we just we just went right into survival mode. I I absolutely did. I I saw people who needed help everywhere you looked. There were people who lost everything. People, so how did you help them at that point? So what I realized when I got there was that there was no comms. There's no cell service. There's no power anywhere. Everything is down. No water. No nothing. To drink, no supply. No supply. I mean, everybody lost everything. People were losing, they lost their house. People were walking around not even knowing where they were. So I immediately pulled myself out so that I could get into power, into, into comms. And I realized that my the best thing I could do, I knew from Andrew that supplies would be an issue right away. Like people needed food. Just basic they, needs, water they, and They food. needed water. They needed toothbrushes. They needed, you know, we would need obviously the, the big things like chainsaws and gas and all that stuff. And that was, that was natural, but the, people lost everything, like literally everything um there were guides that showed up uh at our office a week later that that lost that only had the clothes on their back that literally had nothing no car no truck no boat nothing so forget about business they they couldn't operate they couldn't even live so um i went knowing that those two guys had to had personal things that it deal with you know chris was out rescuing people but he also had a house and a wife and, and, a, and a young baby and daniel had family there and all the time the entire captains for clean water team had personal things they were dealing with and while when they while they were getting that un- organized i organized all these supply drop-offs on the east coast 
places that were not affected at all, places that had been through hurricanes that knew exactly what needed to come to these supply drops. And within a matter of 48 hours, we had regular supply deliveries going over to the West Coast. Wow. Um, truckloads full, U-Hauls full, my back truck full every day going across with gas, with food, with water. And we were saving people's lives. Not because it's something that I want to talk about now or that we wanted to publicize, but that we it needed to be done. Had to do it. People were dying. People needed help. And so I, my new, I knew that my strength at that time was the organizational opportunities on the East Coast and getting those supplies across. And um, we did it for as long as it needed to be done. And, uh, you know, I know Chris saved a ton of people. I know Daniel saved a ton of people. I know we've given people a new lease when they've lost everything. Um, Currently, we have a pop-up shop at the captain's office. No no office work getting done. Literally a pop-up shop where all the brands, Columbia, AFCO, Orvis, um, Yeti, Costa, have sent all this product so that the people who've lost everything can go and get something and have something, have a shirt, wow, that's awesome. ha- have a hat, have a pair of glasses, have a cooler to put ice in, have, and and we created this guide fund and this relief fund that we've been able to help people who desperately need it. And- um, Cause yeah. I know IGFA has the wharf program, yep. World Angling Relief Fund. For sure. Um, bunch of people, you know, sold things and raised money, you know, and I, I know a lot of that is going to go over to the Sanibel guys. We did the same thing. Yeah. Uh, Flip and I auctioned a couple of days off. And I saw that. We raised 12 grand. That's awesome. It's <laughs> amazing. In, in no time. Yeah. Um, hurricanes are, are good for the ocean yeah. <laughs> and that's about it. You know, they yeah. clean things up. Um, you were nominated, I think Nikki was telling me, as one of the top 10, um, it's a garden and gun conservationist. Gun conservationist. Yeah. I, I've I've won quite a few of those things. The it's so funny how that went down. Um, I, you know, I knew of garden and gun, but I'm not a magazine reader. Just like right. I'm not a show watcher. Um, but I knew Eddie Nickens, who's the guy who wrote the article. Um, he's one of Flip's friends. Um, very respected in the industry. Uh, Eddie's a great dude. And in the middle of tarpon season this year, he calls me, and I'm literally in the back of my boat holding the boat in place while my client's casting and Eddie calls a few times and I'm like and in between fish so I, I pick up the phone hey Eddie what's up he goes hey man I need 30 minutes of your time I'm like I don't have time I, I get three hours of sleep at night I got trips for the next three day, three months there's no I don't have time I hang up the phone and this goes on for a couple weeks very much like the the show opportunity and um after a while Eddie gets a little frustrated and he's like listen asshole <laughs> i need 30 minutes of your time you're being recognized i'm like i don't want to be recognized and, and we went back and forth he's like look i'm getting 30 minutes of your time whether you want it or not and finally when i sat down with him i realized that gardening gun for the first time um through this sponsor atlantic packaging who's who's also in he's in the industry of packaging who's doing the same thing we're going through a dynamic cultural change in, in packaging where they're going away from single-use products and doing all the right things for the environment has they donated a ton of money to sponsor this conservation heroes effort every year in garden and gun. This is the first year and um, garden and gun created a, a a panel of just very respected people in the industry. One of which is a friend and Simon Perkins, the, the, uh, the president of Orvis. And um, I was nominated. So so one of 10 uh, conservation heroes, which again is, uh, you know, I, I personally don't put a lot of credence in that. Yeah, I feel like, like I said before, I feel like we're all responsible. 
you are all responsible. But what this does, it gives you leverage. Yeah, and that, but what that does, it, it's it, confirmation. It's confirmation. It gives you leverage to go and ask for, you know, con- for with companies yeah. say we need help. Sure. And when you have those kind of badges, it, it gives uh, it gives you leverage. Yeah. But the important thing for me was that it was another platform to talk about every registration. Right. And that that for me was everything. And and so Garden and Gun is an entirely new demographic that we've never touched. And all of a sudden, there's all these people that are interested in what's going on in Southwest right. Florida and in, in the Glades. And um, so I, I appreciate those opportunities right. for that. I hate attention. And so it was difficult for me to get through that part. But um, this is good attention now. Yeah. It's not the Cubans got to come and <laughs> jump at my ramp. Embrace <laughs> all the fish. Embrace it. Uh, I get, it's good. I get it. Um, you know, for me, the confirmation was Tallahassee. You know, for me, the confirmation yeah. is when I go places and the kids run up and they're like, hey, I got my captain's hat and I sent that email that you sent, asked me to send. For me, that's, that is everything. Right. Well, you have, you have made conservation cool and not just you. I know that's other efforts as well, but you played a huge role in that. And I'll tell you that from my perspective. I appreciate that. Yeah. You really have. You've had a very inspiring life to people um, that can see how what good guides can do yeah Out, outside uh, yeah of fishing. i mean I, i'm talking about the full spectrum of your life you know you you bring happiness to people you show them the everglades you take them to places they've never seen before um we're going to talk to ansel saunders tomorrow from the bahamas mm-hmm. and dr martin luther king went to the bahamas he was with ansel and he wanted ansel to take him to a place of serenity you live in serenity yeah but but with that too, that's given you the education, and and the um, the desire to save that, right. and therefore now you're in Tallahassee with this groundswell changing changing nature, you know, in, in South Florida. Yep, I agree. I, I um again, we a lot of this was shot by the hip, you know. As most guides, you you, you fake it till you make it. That's we're like the definition of that. But at least you were speaking with with. Uh, um, understanding and education as to why you needed to make that change, you know. So at least yeah. you have that con- that conviction that what we are doing is the right thing. Yeah, my my hope is that the the next generations coming up don't have that struggle that we had, understanding whether we needed to speak up or not, or whether we needed to go to these places and and give the water a voice mm-hmm. or not. It's just fundamental. Have you seen your other buddies that once? Uh, denounced you know your voice with, with conservation are they jumping on board now some of them have and they've become some of the biggest proponents believe it or not you know you find that personality of person usually is the the really loud personality and, and in order to get past the wrong things they were saying they have to be louder about the right things they're saying and which is great i i i don't care honestly I, it's really important for people to understand i don't care what you did yesterday I don't even care what you did this morning. If you right now decide that you're going to be a, become a steward of your water and you want to come to us, come to Tallahassee tomorrow and you want to speak up or you want to write some, a post or, or create an op-ed and, and talk about what's going on, then you're a conservationist. You're a steward. You, you are now one of our friends. I, I, I think people get stuck in this mentality with that they've been talking about how we shouldn't speak up forever and that's the, that's the character they should play forever. That's bullcrap. Uh, I think. I think in life, 
you know, you mature. You can shift. You can, you can mature from one ideology to another just by understanding that you were maybe wrong. And you don't even have to say you're wrong in this case. You just have to start speaking up. Look, you're talking uh, one of your podcasts that I listened to, Shifting the Baseline. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's that's the well, the shifting baseline is two things. One is if I went into if you, if I took you to my fishery right now, Andy, and I said this is this is incredible, this is epic, and you know differently. You've you fished for tarpon for how many years? Forty years, close to forty. Yeah, forty years. And and I told you that the tarpon fishery is better than it's ever been. You told me you would tell me that I'm full of crap because you've seen differently. Right. My baseline is different than yours. Right. And my fear with the shifting baseline for fisheries is that the young kids don't know what they're fighting for. And so in every episode, at every opportunity that I have, I try to educate them on a little historic uh, perspective that I know you love the Mosquito Lagoon and that you caught two fish today and that's an epic day for you. But just so you know, 20 years ago, two fish was what we caught before we even got off the plane on the first spot. And that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting to restore these places to what they used to be, or at least a portion of what they used to be. Mm-hmm. And um, they have to understand that 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 things can come back better than what they are. Yeah, I that, think we're doing that a little bit too with these these stories that we're, we're recording as well. You know, with uh, not necessarily the advocacy side of the environmental changes and what we can do to you know better help the future but to listen to eddie whiteman and to listen to steve huff talk about what the 60s and 70s were like it was like are you kidding me mm-hmm. you know i listened to what you tell me and i can't even believe it right. and you tell me and now there's a whole another generation there's a whole new baseline that's these guys are saying no that that was nothing right. this is how it was mm-hmm. right it, it it makes me a little ma- mad too I mean, um, it makes me sad because I would love to have experienced that stuff, but it also makes me mad because they didn't understand where they stood in history at that time. Right. They thought it was endless. And I can understand how they can think that. I, I yeah. There were moments in my life that I thought were like that. I used to, not that long ago, on an August morning or September, you could run your skiff all the way into Garfield Bite, come off plane, stake out, and not move the skiff all day long. All day long and catch snook, redfish, tarp, and trout all day long. Black drum all day long. Like the, that's how the fishery was. And you talk to some of the older guys, uh, Rick Earl, Herman Lucerne, um, Flip or Chico, or any of the guys that fished there before, and they'll tell you that that was, that was nothing. And so in, in, at the time when they were young and experiencing it, they didn't understand. Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason why I think we have responsibility right now. Also, too, we've seen the degradation of everything and the and and how it's evolved. Right. So now we know that if we don't change the way we think and right. act, it's just going to get worse. That's exactly my Back point. Back then, the only thing they knew was greatness. That's exactly my point. So we're yeah. talking thirty years ago. They didn't have an idea. There was, you know, they thought it was endless. Yeah. Today we know it's not. Right. And we know we don't have another thirty years. So if we know that, what changes are we doing today to, to make you know, positive change in the future? And I, I asked Flip this recently. I said, Flip, if, if you had social media, if you had the ability to reach millions of people in one swoop, and you knew today, you knew back then what you know today, 
how would you, what would you have done differently? And he, it literally took him, and you know, Flip, he's very quick with responses. It took him a minute and a half, two minutes because he could not speak without crying. He had tears running down his face and he said, I would get at the, I would move myself to the highest rooftop and I would never stop screaming. So, because there's an understanding that he understands that he didn't speak up enough and he mm -hmm. spoke up. He's the reason I'm speaking up. Right. Right. So my question is, yes, we're speaking up and I'm doing everything I can. Is it, is it enough? Is it enough? And is everyone using their platform to do that? And if you're not, what are you doing tomorrow that's differently? And understanding where we are in history is the most important part. And that's that shifting baseline that I was talking about, that the baseline will continue to shift until we stop it. And we stop it with our voices. We have to use every opportunity that we, that we can as responsible stewards for the water and the fisheries that we love, that we depend on for our lives, to educate the people, everyone around us, that this is not an infinite resource that we have. If we don't stop fighting now, we are going to lose it. And that was the point of me asking Flip was that back then they didn't know any better. They didn't have social media. They didn't have the ability to, to create a podcast that millions of people could listen to tomorrow. They didn't have those opportunities. We do, we do. And the results are in our face. Tallahassee in February, the, the, the hurricane relief, like we can do incredible things when we know we have to. Right. So I think this taking a step back and understanding where we are in history is the most important thing we can do right now. We have to speak up. Like it's not a question. So when people say, Hey Benny, you're doing all these things, you're going, you know, you're traveling all the place. I have to, Right. I have to, I know too much and I don't know any better. I have to, I have to, when I have that conversation with my grandchild, however many years from now that is, I have to be able to tell them that I did everything in my power because I can never be in that situation where I question whether I did enough. I don't want to put myself in that situation. And hopefully we're doing enough now that the, the culture does change. That dynamic shift changes, happens. And the conversation with my grandkid is, do you see how amazing it is? That's because we stood up. Right. That, that would be my tournament win. Very well said. Yeah. And as we close this, I just, it was really cool was at the BTT gala in uh, New York when he said, Richie Andrews, your friend, Richie Andrews, always used to end the night at dinner used with to the begin, cheers. Begin dinner, you know, when we were on in the Bahamas on his mothership, he'd, he'd always, you know, start dinner with it, with a toast to the resource. To the resource. To Excellent. the resource. Love it. Love it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Benny, thanks so Thank much for so coming much. on, man. Thank you for having me. Give yeah. me a pl another platform to reach more people. And I'm really proud of you for making that personal shift. Mm. I appreciate in that. your personal life. I didn't. I didn't have a choice. Yeah. Well, anyway, no. congratulations. Thank you, Andy. You're very inspirational to yeah. many of the young kids and uh, to us too. Us and you know your fellow guides. Even though you may not get the recognition from them, I think you're you're changing their thoughts and you're doing the right thing, man. I appreciate that. Thanks, thanks, Benny. Yeah great having you yeah thanks for having me always i've always enjoyed being in the presence of benny blanco but i never really knew his full story and now that i know it i love him his impact on conservation and his involvement with captains for clean water helped the groundswell to stand up in tallahassee and forced them to listen 
Thank you for all you do, Benny. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.